0: third lecture of the origin and development of psychoanalysis by sigmund freud translated by harry chase this librivox recording is in the public domain ladies and gentlemen it is not always easy to tell the truth especially when one must be brief and so today i must correct an incorrect statement that i made in my last lecture I told you how, when I gave up using hypnosis, I pressed my patients to tell me what came into their minds that had to do with the problem we were working on. I told them that they would remember what they had apparently forgotten, and that the thought which erupted into consciousness Einfall, would surely embody the memory for which we were seeking. I claimed that I substantiated the fact that the first idea of my patients brought the right clue and could be shown to be the forgotten continuation of the memory. Now, this is not always so. I represented it as being so simple only for purposes of abbreviation. In fact, it would only happen the first times that the right forgotten material would emerge through simple pressure on my part. If the experience was continued, ideas emerged in every case which could not be the right ones, for they were not to the purpose, and the patients themselves rejected them as incorrect. Pressure was of no further service here and one could only regret again having given up hypnosis in this state of perplexity i clung to a prejudice which years later was proved by my friend c g jung of the university of zurich and his pupils to have scientific justification i must confess that it is often of great advantage to have prejudices i put a high value on the strength of the determination of mental processes and i could not believe that any idea which occurred to the patient which originated in a state of concentrated attention, could be quite arbitrary and out of all relation to the forgotten idea that we were seeking. That it was not identical with the latter could be satisfactorily explained by the hypothetical psychological situation. In the patients whom I treated, there were two opposing forces. On the one hand, the conscious striving to drag up into consciousness the forgotten experience which was present in the unconscious and on the other hand, the resistance which we have seen, which set itself against the emergence of the suppressed idea, or its associates, into consciousness. In case this resistance was non-existent or very slight, the forgotten material could become conscious without disguise It was then a natural supposition that the disguise would be the more complete, the greater the resistance to the emergence of the idea thoughts which broke into the patient's consciousness instead of the ideas sought for were accordingly made up just like symptoms they were new artificial ephemeral surrogates for the repressed ideas and differed from these just in proportion as they had been more completely disguised under the influence of the resistances these surrogates must however show a certain similarity with the ideas which are the object of our search by virtue of their nature as symptoms and when the resistance is not too intensive it is possible from the nature of these eruptions to discover the hidden object of our search. This must be related to the repressed thought as a sort of allusion, as a statement of the same thing in indirect terms. We know cases in normal psychology in which analogous situations to the one which we have assumed give rise to similar experiences. Such a case is that of wit. By my study of psychoanalytic technique, I was necessarily led to a consideration of the problem of the nature of wit. I will give one example of this sort, which, too, is a story that originally appeared in English. The anecdote runs. Two unscrupulous businessmen had succeeded by fortunate speculations in accumulating a large fortune, and then directed their efforts to breaking into good society among other means they thought it would be of advantage to be painted by the most famous and expensive artist of the city a man whose paintings were considered as events the costly paintings were first shown at a great soiree and both hosts led the most influential connoisseur and art critic to the wall of the salon on which the portraits were hung to elicit his admiring judgment the artist looked for a long time looked about as though in search of something and then merely asked pointing out the vacant space between the two pictures and where is the saviour i see that you are all laughing over this good example of wit which we will now attempt to analyze we understand that the critic means to say you are a couple of malefactors like those between whom the saviour was crucified but he does not say this he expresses himself instead in a way that at first seems not to the purpose and not related to the matter in hand but which at the next moment we recognize as an allusion to the insult at which he aims and as a perfect surrogate for it we cannot expect to find in the case of wit all those relations that our theory supposes for the origin of the eruptive ideas of our patients but it is my desire to lay stress on the similar motivation of wit and eruptive idea why does not the critic say directly what he has to say to the two rogues because in addition to his desire to say it straight out he is actuated by strong opposite motives it is a proceeding which is liable to be dangerous to offend people who are one's hosts and who can call to their aid the strong arms of numerous servants one might easily suffer the same fate that i used in the previous lecture to illustrate repression on this ground the critic does not express the particular insults directly But in a disguised form, as an allusion with omission. The same constellation comes into play, according to our hypothesis, when our patient produces the eruptive idea as a surrogate for the forgotten idea which is the object of the quest. Ladies and gentlemen, it is very useful to designate a group of ideas which belong together and have a common emotive tone, according to the custom of the Zurich school, Bleuler, Jung, and others, as a complex. So we can say, that if we set out from the last memories of the patient to look for a repressed complex, that we have every prospect of discovering it, if only the patient will communicate to us a sufficient number of the ideas which come into his head. So we let the patient speak along any line that he desires, and cling to the hypothesis that nothing can occur to him except what has some indirect bearing on the complex that we are seeking. If this method of discovering the repressed complexes seems too circumstantial, I can at least assure you that it is the only available one. In practising this technique, one is further bothered by the fact that the patient often stops, is at a standstill and considers that he has nothing to say. Nothing occurs to him. If this were really the case and the patient were right, our procedure would again be proven inapplicable closer observation shows that such an absence of ideas never really occurs and that it only appears to when the patient holds back or rejects the idea which he perceives under the influence of the resistance which disguises itself as critical judgment of the value of the idea the patient can be protected from this if he is warned in advance of this circumstance and told to take no account of the critical attitude he must say anything that comes into his mind fully laying aside such critical choice even though he may think it unessential irrelevant nonsensical especially when the idea is one which is unpleasant to dwell on by following this prescription we secure the material which sets us on the track of the repressed complex these eruptive ideas which the patient himself values little if he is under the influence of the resistance and not that of the physician are for the psychologist like the ore which by simple methods of interpretation he reduces from its crude state to valuable metal. If one desires to gain in a short time a preliminary knowledge of the patient's repressed complexes without going into the question of their arrangement and associations, this examination may be conducted with the help of the association experiments, as Jung and his pupils have perfected them. This procedure is to the psychologist what qualitative analysis is to the chemist. It may be dispensed with in the therapy of neurotic patients, but it is indispensable in the investigations of the psychoses, which have been begun by the Zurich School with such valuable results. This method of work, with whatever comes into the patient's head when he submits to psychoanalytic treatment, is not the only technical means at our disposal for the widening of consciousness. Two other methods of procedure serve the same purpose, the interpretation of his dreams, and the evaluation of acts which he bungles or does without intending to, Fehl und Zufallshandlungen. I might say, esteemed hearers, that for a long time I hesitated whether instead of this hurried survey of the whole field of psychoanalysis, I should not rather offer you a thorough consideration of the analysis of dreams. A purely subjective and apparently secondary motive decided me against this it seemed rather an impropriety that in this country, so devoted to practical pursuits, I should pose as interpreter of dreams, before you had a chance to discover what significance the old and despised art can claim. Interpretation of dreams is in fact the via regia to the interpretation of the unconscious, the surest ground of psychoanalysis, and a field in which every worker must win his convictions and gain his education if i were asked how one could become a psychoanalyst i should answer through the study of his own dreams with great tact all opponents of the psychoanalytic theory have so far evaded any criticism of the traum or have attempted to pass over it with the most superficial objections if on the contrary you will undertake the solution of the problems of dream life the novelties which psychoanalysis present to your thoughts will no longer be difficulties you must remember that our nightly dream productions show the greatest outer similarity and inner relationship to the creations of the insane but on the other hand are compatible with full health during waking life it does not sound at all absurd to say that whoever regards these normal sense illusions these delusions and alterations of character as matter for amazement instead of understanding has not the least prospect of understanding the abnormal creations of diseased mental states in any other than the lay sense You may with confidence place in this lay group all the psychiatrists of today. Follow me now on a brief excursion through the field of dream problems. In our waking state, we usually treat dreams with as little consideration as the patient treats the eruptive ideas which the psychoanalyst demands from him. It is evident that we reject them, for we forget them quickly and completely. The slight valuation which we place on them is based with those dreams that are not confused and nonsensical, on the feeling that they are foreign to our personality, and with other dreams, on their evident absurdity and senselessness. Our rejection derives support from the unrestrained shamelessness and the immoral longings which are obvious in many dreams. Antiquity, as we know, did not share this light valuation of dreams. The lower classes of our people today stick close to the value which they set on dreams. They, however, expect from them, as did the ancients, the revelation of the future. I confess that I see no need to adopt mystical hypotheses to fill out the gaps in our present knowledge, and so I have never been able to find anything that supported the hypothesis of the prophetic nature of dreams. Many other things which are wonderful enough can be said about them. And first, not all dreams are so foreign to the character of the dreamer, are incomprehensible and confused. If you will undertake to consider the dreams of young children from the age of a year and a half on, you will find them quite simple and easy to interpret. The young child always dreams of the fulfilment of wishes which were aroused in him the day before and were not satisfied. You need no art of interpretation to discover this simple solution. You only need to inquire into the experiences of the child on the day before, the dream day. Now it would certainly be a most satisfactory solution of the dream riddle if the dreams of adults, too, were the same as those of children, fulfillments of wishes which had been aroused in them during the dream day. This is actually the fact. The difficulties which stand in the way of this solution can be removed step by step by a thorough analysis of the dream. There is first of all the most weighty objection that the dreams of adults generally have an incomprehensible content which shows wish-fulfillment least of anything. The answer is this. These dreams have undergone a process of disguise. The psychic content which underlies them was originally meant for quite different verbal expression. You must differentiate between the manifest dream content, which we remember in the morning only confusedly, and with difficulty clothe in words which seem arbitrary, and the latent dream thoughts, whose presence in the unconscious we must assume. This distortion of the dream, Traumenstellung, is the same process which has been revealed to you in the investigations of the creations, symptoms, of hysterical subjects. It points to the fact that the same opposition of psychic forces has its share in the creation of dreams as in the creation of symptoms. The manifest dream content is the disguised surrogate for the unconscious dream thoughts, and this disguising is the work of the defensive forces of the ego, of the resistances. These prevent the repressed wishes from entering consciousness during the waking life, and even in the relaxation of sleep they are still strong enough to force them to hide themselves by a sort of masquerading. The dreamer, then, knows just as little the sense of his dream as the hysterical knows the relation and significance of his symptoms. That there are latent dream thoughts and that between them and the manifest dream content there exists the relation just described. Of this you may convince yourselves, by the analysis of dreams, a procedure the technique of which is exactly that of psychoanalysis. You must abstract entirely from the apparent connection of the elements in the manifest dream, and seek for the eruptive ideas which arise through free association, according to the psychoanalytic laws, from each separate dream element. From this material, the latent dream thoughts may be discovered exactly as one divines the concealed complexes of the patient from the fancies connected with his symptoms and memories. From the latent dream thoughts which you will find in this way, you will see at once how thoroughly justified one is in interpreting the dreams of adults by the same rubrics as those of children. What is now substituted for the manifest dream content is the real sense of the dream, is always clearly comprehensible, associated with the impressions of the day before, and appears as the fulfilling of an unsatisfied wish. The manifest dream, which we remember after waking, may then be described as a disguised fulfilment of repressed wishes. It is also possible, by a sort of synthesis, to get some insight into the process which has brought about the disguise of the unconscious dream thoughts as the manifest dream content. We call this process dream-work This deserves our fullest theoretical interest. Since here, as nowhere else, we can study the unsuspected psychic processes which are existent in the unconscious, or, to express it more exactly, between two such separate systems as the conscious and the unconscious. Among these newly discovered psychic processes, two, condensation, Verdichtung, and displacement or transvaluation, change of psychic accent, Verschiebung, stand out most prominently. Dream work is a special case of the reaction of different mental groupings on each other, and as such is the consequence of psychic fission. In all essential points it seems identical with the work of disguise, which changes the repressed complex in the case of failing repression into symptoms. You will furthermore discover by the analysis of dreams, most convincingly your own, the unsuspected importance of the role which impressions and experiences from early childhood exert on the development of men. In the dream life, the child, as it were, continues his existence in the man, with a retention of all his traits and wishes, including those which he was obliged to allow to fall into disuse in his later years. With irresistible might, it will be impressed on you by what processes of development, of repression, sublimation and reaction there arises out of the child, with its peculiar gifts and tendencies, the so-called normal man, the bearer and partly the victim of our painfully acquired civilization. I will also direct your attention to the fact that we have discovered from the analysis of dreams that the unconscious makes use of a sort of symbolism, especially in the presentation of sexual complexes. This symbolism in part varies with the individual, but in part is of a typical nature, and seems to be identical with the symbolism which we suppose to lie behind our myths and legends. It is not impossible that these latter creations of the people may find their explanation from the study of dreams finally i must remind you that you must not be led astray by the objection that the occurrence of anxiety dreams angströme contradicts our idea of the dream as a wish-fulfilment apart from the consideration that anxiety dreams also require interpretation before judgment can be passed on them one can say quite generally that the anxiety does not depend in such a simple way on the dream content as one might suppose without more knowledge of the facts And more attention to the conditions of neurotic anxiety anxiety is one of the ways in which the ego relieves itself of repressed wishes which have become too strong and so is easy to explain in the dream if the dream has gone too far towards the fulfilling of the objectionable wish you see that the investigation of dreams was justified by the conclusions which it has given us concerning things otherwise hard to understand But we came to it in connection with the psychoanalytic treatment of neurotics. From what has been said, you can easily understand how the interpretation of dreams, if it is not made too difficult by the resistance of the patient, can lead to a knowledge of the patient's concealed and repressed wishes and the complexes which he is nourishing. I may now pass to that group of everyday mental phenomena whose study has become a technical help for psychoanalysis. These are the bungling of acts among normal men as well as among neurotics to which no significance is ordinarily attached the forgetting of things which one is supposed to know and at other times really does know for example the temporary forgetting of proper names mistakes in speaking wir sprechen, which occur so frequently analogous mistakes in writing wir schreiben. and in reading wir lesen. the automatic execution of purposive acts in wrong situations wir greifen and the loss or breaking of objects etc these are trifles for which no one has ever sought a psychological determination which have passed unchallenged as chance experiences as consequences of absent-mindedness inattention and similar conditions here too are included the acts and gestures executed without being noticed by the subject to say nothing of the fact that he attaches no psychic importance to them as playing and trifling with objects humming melodies handling one's person and clothing and the like these little things the bungling of acts like the symptomatic and chance acts symptom und Zufallshandlungen, are not so entirely without meaning as is generally supposed by a sort of tacit agreement they have a meaning generally easy and sure to interpret from the situation in which they occur and it can be demonstrated that they either express impulses and purposes which are repressed hidden, if possible, from the consciousness of the individual, or that they spring from exactly the same sort of repressed wishes and complexes which we have learnt to know already as the creators of symptoms and dreams. It follows that they deserve the rank of symptoms, and their observation, like that of dreams, can lead to the discovery of the hidden complexes of the psychic life. With their help, one will usually betray the most intimate of his secrets. If these occur so easily and commonly among people in health, With whom repression has on the whole succeeded fairly well this is due to their insignificance and their inconspicuous nature but they can lay claim to high theoretic value for they prove the existence of repression and surrogate creations even under the conditions of health you have already noticed that the psychoanalyst is distinguished by an especially strong belief in the determination of the psychic life for him there is in the expressions of the psyche nothing trifling nothing arbitrary and lawless he expects everywhere a widespread motivation where customarily such claims are not made more than that he is even prepared to find a manifold motivation of these psychic expressions while our supposedly inborn causal need is satisfied with a single psychic cause now keeping in mind the means which we possess for the discovery of the hidden forgotten repressed things in the soul life the study of the eruptive ideas called up by free association the patient's dreams and his bungled and symptomatic acts and adding to these the evaluation of other phenomena which emerge during the psychoanalytic treatment on which i shall later make a few remarks under the heading of transfer you will come with me to the conclusion that our technique is already sufficiently efficacious for the solution of the problem of how to introduce the pathogenic psychic material into consciousness and so to do away with the suffering brought on by the creation of surrogate symptoms the fact that by such therapeutic endeavors our knowledge of the mental life of the normal and the abnormal is widened and deepened can of course only be regarded as an especial attraction and superiority of this method i do not know whether you have gained the impression that the technique through whose arsenal i have led you is a peculiarly difficult one I consider that on the contrary, for one who has mastered it, it is quite adapted for use. But so much is sure that it is not obvious, that it must be learned no less than the histological or the surgical technique. You may be surprised to learn that in Europe we have heard very frequently judgments passed on psychoanalysis by persons who knew nothing of its technique and had never practiced it, but who demanded scornfully that we show the correctness of our results. There are among these people some who are not in other things unacquainted with scientific methods of thought, who for example would not reject the result of a microscopical research because it cannot be confirmed with the naked eye in anatomical preparations, and who would not pass judgment until they had used the microscope. But in matters of psychoanalysis, circumstances are really more unfavorable for gaining recognition. Psychoanalysis will bring the repressed in mental life to conscious acknowledgement, and everyone who judges it is himself a man who has such repressions, perhaps only maintained with difficulty. It will consequently call forth the same resistances from him as from the patient, and this resistance can easily succeed in disguising itself as intellectual rejection, and bring forward arguments similar to those from which we protect our patients by the basic principles of psychoanalysis. It is not difficult to substantiate in our opponents the same impairment of intelligence produced by emotivity, which we may observe every day with our patients. The arrogance of consciousness, which for example rejects dreams so lightly, belongs, quite generally, to the strongest protective apparatus which guards us against the breaking through of the unconscious complexes, and as a result it is hard to convince people of the reality of the unconscious, and to teach them anew what their conscious knowledge contradicts. End of third lecture